This is Medieval Death Trip for June 5th, 2017, Episode 40, Fear and Trembling in Durham Cathedral. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. So last episode, I was heading off to the International Congress on Medieval Studies, hosted as always at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. I'm back now, and I can say the conference was great. Uh, It's only the second time I've managed to make it up there, uh, and I'm kicking myself that I haven't made more of an effort over these past few years while I've been here in the Midwest and pretty close to it um, to get up there more often. But I had a fantastic time, uh, a better time than many, I'd say, uh, since I was free of any of the stress of having to actually present a paper, uh, and I was also at liberty to go to whatever panels I wanted to, uh, which was stressful in its own way, as I mentioned last episode, uh, just because it was so hard to choose from so many options. But I didn't have to worry about feeling obligated to attend any particular panels uh, because they're in my specialty or because important colleagues or good friends are on them. Um, I was free to flit about from discipline to discipline like a bee visiting all the various flowers in the field uh, to borrow a commonplace of medieval rhetoric that was brought up at uh, a couple of different panels that I attended. That said, uh, not presenting a paper and not being a specialist uh, did open up its own rich vein of anxiety in the form of imposter syndrome, Uh, But my ongoing solution to that is to just try to be as open as possible, so I welcome your comments or corrections or alternative interpretations or elaborations. Uh, I know Twitter, with its character limit, isn't always the ideal venue for academic discourse, um, but it can be a starting place. Uh, And as a side note, uh, I will say I was vexed to discover that whenever I tried to tweet praise for anything I saw at the conference, uh, I felt like I couldn't escape sounding like Donald Trump. Now, is it possible for one person to completely co-opt an entire rhetorical register or idiom? Can a dialect be commandeered and turned into an idiolect? So linguists, hit me up if you have an answer to that. Um, and where can you do that? Well, Twitter, at MDT Podcast, uh, Or anyone who has some feedback uh, for the show can leave longer comments on episodes at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Very quickly, though, I'd like to shout out uh, just a tiny selection of the sessions I attended. Um, I'll try to keep it brief because we do have one of the longer texts we've done so far to get to uh, still in this episode. But the very first panel I went to um, was kind of a grand slam to kick the conference off. Uh, Of the several Thursday 10 a.m. options that I hashed out in that uh, a little overly long segment last episode... I ultimately opted for the New Models of Presentation of Medieval Texts panels, uh, which was presided over by Peter Robinson of the University of Saskatchewan uh, and who is part of the Canterbury Tales Project. I went imagining myself as a colleague in at least one particular mode of presenting medieval texts online um, through podcast, uh, though the panel uh, really was much more about manuscript studies and using digital tools and crowdsourcing and other approaches to further the scholarly work on manuscript analysis. Uh, so it wasn't quite so much about new media, which was my vector, um, but I still found it fascinating. In another more focused life, uh, I think I would have gone fully into manuscript studies and paleography as uh, my medieval specialty. 
Um, and as an added bonus, uh, Peter took a group of us who had stuck around afterwards uh, out to lunch, which was lovely and, again, a, a great start to my conference experience. The experimental archaeology session that Thursday night was also great uh, and provided some hands-on experiences that really are the sort of thing a conference can provide that just reading journals can't. So this was the session with the presentation on um, experiments comparing bread mold growth on different types of bread uh, and uh, different kinds of survival tools from the Viking Age through the present day. And those were both great, but I particularly want to call out the work on Viking Age dress uh, that was shown by Michael Roberts, who gave just a wonderful demonstration of the specific kinds of insights you can get from physically creating and playing with, and in this case, actually wearing the artifacts that you're studying, which also held true for uh, eating the bread and using the survival tools. Um, that is the entire point of experimental archaeology. Uh, but there was something really fascinating about the the comparison of the ways of using a garment uh, that Michael was trying out and the iconographic evidence um, from the Viking Age that um, that he had. Uh, and just two more, um, a pair of back-to-back panels from Saturday afternoon. The first was on shape-shifting, uh, at which from three very good papers, there was an especially interesting one given by uh, Andrea Whitaker of Indiana University at Bloomington on bisclaverette, uh, as featured in episode 18 of this show, uh, and a Norse translation of that lay. And then right after the shape-shifting panel, uh, I went to uh, the third Monsters session put on by uh, the organization Merkstapa, which is a slightly tortured but charming acronym uh, for Monsters, colon, Experimental Association for the Research of Cryptozoology Through Scholarly Theory and Practical Application, Merkstapa being an old English word meaning boundary or border walker, uh, so literally Merk, march, as in the borderlands, like the Welsh marches, uh, and stapa, stepper, uh, one who walks. And Merk stapa is one of the terms used to describe Grendel, who walks the borderlands between, um, well, the wilds or the other world and human society, depending on how you want to read that. Anyway, this panel was a roundtable done in classic roundtable style, which you don't always get, uh, with a moderator asking questions and the panel responding and conversing amongst themselves. In fact, I think in a 90-minute session, the moderator only managed to ask two formal questions, uh, and the conversation just took over. It was like a beautiful, idealized version of what, as an undergraduate, I imagined professors' dinner parties were like, rather unlike the real thing, which I've since discovered is usually people talking about the news uh, or comparing local grade schools, or finding out who's been to the newest restaurants, uh, or basically all the topics that all dinner parties cover. But to close off on the subject of chatting, uh, it was also great to catch up with some old friends and colleagues from both the University of Illinois uh, and Missouri. And if any of you have tuned in to this episode, uh, welcome! I promise it's about to get to the real, proper, medieval material. Uh, in fact, that's going to happen right now. All right, leaving Kalamazoo in the rearview mirror, let's get to today's text. As I previewed last episode, today we're starting in on a three-part series looking at some of the various exhumations of St. Cuthbert, patron saint of Northumbria, formerly Bishop of Lindisfarne, and later Chief Relic of Durham Cathedral. Each episode will focus on a different text, with the first two episodes looking at accounts of the translation of the saint's body in 1104 uh, into the cathedral, 
And the third episode will look at the excavation and examination of his relics by the antiquarian James Rain in 1827, who previously appeared on this show examining the relics of the Venerable Bede um, back in episode 22. As a starting point, perhaps we should gloss that word translation. So medievalists, and probably any Catholics who are especially attentive to the names of feast days, um, are probably going to be familiar with the specialized meaning of translation that we're using in this context. Uh, It simply means the relocation of a saint's remains from one place to another. When it's being commemorated, that usually marks an upgrade into a shrine or prestigious new tomb, uh, or perhaps a major move from one parish uh, to another. When a saint's bones are dug up by iconoclasts and chucked out of the church, uh, that usually isn't labeled a translation. You'll also find translation used to describe other kinds of changes of place or status. So a bishop may be translated to a new see, for example. And these senses really get at the etymological roots of the word. Uh, Latio in Latin means bearing or carrying, and trans, of course, is across. So translatio is a carrying across. So the more common meaning of translate, to carry meanings across from one language into another, as it were, is arguably a metaphorical usage, uh, or at least an abstract one. But it's a metaphor that's already present in classical Latin usage, uh, though interestingly, classical Latin doesn't quite use it in a verb form. Uh, translatus is the perfect passive participle form of the irregular verb transfere, you know, transfer. So either uh, in Latin, something has been translated in the participial version, or you have to make or do a translation Translate as a verb in and of itself appears to be a medieval vernacular innovation, appearing in French and English in the 13th and 14th centuries. There's a lot of fascinating discussion about what linguistic translation meant to medieval people, uh, namely that it was a much broader concept than just verbatim, you know, one-to-one translation. Uh, But that's a topic we'll have to reserve for another time. Today, we're moving bodies around. The remains of Cuthbert underwent their first translation long before the one in 1104 that will be our primary focus for today. I'm not going to rehearse the life of Cuthbert here. We'll undoubtedly hit some stories from it in future episodes, since his Vita features prominently in one of our go-to sources, the work of Simeon of Durham, um, as well as that of Bede. Uh, And to be honest, the specifics of his life don't actually matter all that much to the stories of his translations. It's probably enough to say that he was a notable ascetic who spent a great deal of time as a hermit on Farn Island before being roped unenthusiastically into service as Bishop of Lindisfarne, an office he held for only a couple of years before his death in 687. He was buried at Lindisfarne, and about a decade later, the monks decided to unearth his remains from the ground and put them up into a raised shrine. When they did this, the monks perceived something miraculous— which Bede relates in his prose, Life and Miracles of St. Cuthbert, uh, which he then almost copies and pastes, practically, into his ecclesiastical history. Um, Here's the version from chapter 42 of The Life, uh, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. Um, And a quick note. So the speech that you'll hear Bishop Edbert give at the end of this example uh, is given in verse in the text, which isn't as obvious when read aloud in translation. Uh, Bede is borrowing these lines out of his own Uh, verse, Life of St. Cuthbert, which serves as a reminder that the medieval audience understood that speeches like this, um, even when they were in prose, were compositions created by the historian. 
and crafting elegant speeches for historical characters was part of the historian's art. It was a valued form of artifice uh, and not seen as an affront to historical accuracy, as we would generally view the invention of direct speech today by anyone other than a screenwriter or an author of historical fiction. Okay, so here's Bede uh, writing only about 20 years after the event he's describing, uh, which occurred in 698. Now it pleased the divine dispensation to manifest more extensively the great glory in which this holy man lived after death, whose life was, even before death, so sublimely attested by numerous miracles. For after eleven years had passed away since his interment, the same divine power put it into the hearts of the brethren to raise up his bones, which they expected to have found dry, as is usual with the dead when the rest of the body has been consumed and reduced to dust, in order that they might enclose his remains in a light chest. And they intended for the sake of decent veneration to deposit these in the same place, but above instead of below the pavement. When they expressed this their desire to Edbert, their bishop, about Midlent, he assented to their proposal, and commanded that they should remember to do this on the day of his deposition, which occurred on the 13th of the Calends of April. This they accordingly did. But, on opening the sepulchre, they found his whole body as entire as when he was yet living, and more like one in a sound sleep, for the joints of the limbs were flexible than one who was dead. All the vestments, moreover, with which he had been clothed, were not only unsoiled, but even appeared in all their former freshness and were of marvelous brightness. And when the monks saw this, they were presently struck with exceeding fear and trembling, so that they could scarcely speak a word. They hardly dared to look upon the miracle which lay before them. Scarcely did they know what to do. And lifting up the end of the garments to give proof of the incorruption of the body, for they absolutely feared to touch that which was next to his flesh, they hurried away to acquaint the bishop with what they had discovered. For at this time he happened to be dwelling as a solitary, in a place remote from the monastery, girt on all sides by the flowing waves of the sea, where he was always wont to spend the whole of Lent, as well as the forty days before our Lord's Nativity, in great devotion, abstinence, prayer, and tears. Here also his venerable predecessor Cuthbert, before he went to Farn, as we related above, wrestled for some time in secret for the Lord. They also brought to him a portion of the vestments in which his holy body had been wrapped. These tokens the bishop gratefully received, he greatly rejoiced to hear of the miracle, and with marvelous affection he kissed the wrappings as if they yet surrounded the body of the Father. Gird, he said, his body with fresh wrappings, instead of these which you have removed, and so place him in the chest you had prepared. For I know most assuredly that the place which has been consecrated by so great a miracle from heaven shall not long remain vacant, and blessed exceedingly is he to whom the Lord, the author and giver of all true blessedness, shall vouchsafe to grant a place of rest therein. And he added in his wonder what I once composed in verse, and said, Who can express the noble acts of the Lord, or who can comprehend the riches of paradise? While God in his mercy breaking the bonds of death hath granted to him perpetual life in heaven, he hath adorned his lifeless limbs with honor, giving fair pledges of perpetual wealth. How blessed the abode which thou hast prepared for him, 
which thou hast made to shine joyful in light. It is easy for thee to command that under the turf gnawing corruption shall not devour his remains. O thou who for three days didst preserve the prophet Jonah, opening a way of life out of the jaws of death, O thou who the flames didst defend the Hebrew children, lest the Chaldean fire should tarnish the beauty of Israel, O thou who for forty years didst renew thy people's raiment, whilst through the pathless desert they trod an unknown road, O thou who into members formest the dust and ashes, when at the trump of the angel the world shall shake on its axis. When the bishop had ended such words as these, and more than these, accompanied with copious tears, with great compunction and with faltering tongue the monks did as they were commanded, and the body having been wrapped in new raiment and laid in a light chest, they deposited it upon the pavement of the sanctuary. So that's Cuthbert's first translation. Two things to note here. The first thing is a matter of theology, and that's the emphasis in Bede's version of Edbert's speech on the deadness of Cuthbert's body. The bishop really drives home that Cuthbert's soul is in heaven, and God is just signifying this fact by holding back the forces of decay and corruption from the bodily remains. Why this emphasis? Uh, we'll get into that question more next episode when we focus uh, on the issue of incorruptibility itself. But as a preview, uh, we might just consider that this could be an effort to separate incorruptibility as a miracle from resurrection, either holy or unholy. Uh, we're making it clear, for one thing, that Cuthbert is not a revenant. And also, clearly separating soul and selfhood from the body itself helps in some degree to distinguish veneration of this miraculous body as a sign from idolatry or worship of the saint himself, an issue that continues to rear its ugly head in attitudes towards relics of all kinds throughout the Middle Ages. Anyway, we see Bede here touching on this key point, that Cuthbert's body is indisputably dead, uh, and so watch for that too as we get into our main text. The second thing is the reaction of the monks upon perceiving the miracle, fear. This reaction is one of those things uh, that I think might surprise us a bit uh, on an intellectual level. Um, it's not that particularly scary of a miracle. It's not like a pillar of fire or something. Um, and it's a nice thing that's happened to a beloved figure known in life to the monks involved. But I think their fear seems quite natural on a kind of visceral level. How would we react to seeing the natural laws violated, um, especially when we're not primed for it? I'm reminded of videos of David Blaine doing his levitation trick to people on the street. For each one who's delighted, you'll have another who says, hell no, and literally backs away and all but runs off. Um, it's one thing to see a miracle or illusion in a performative space, be it on a stage or at a shrine, and quite another to encounter it out in the world when you aren't expecting it. I suspect this is a kind of instinctive revulsion, uh, or at least a kind of flinching, that we've all experienced at some point or another. Uh, we have Freud's concept of the uncanny and elaborations on it uh, to explain that revulsion or discomfort today. Uh, I don't think the Middle Ages have any such theory articulated, though I'm sure you could turn up one or more Old English terms that convey something close to Freud's unheimlich. Uh, well, I mean, Grendel the Merkstappe is touching on that, right? Uh, but the uncanny is clearly a component of this admixture of fear and confusion and delight 
that surrounds the experience of the seemingly miraculous. An element of this, uh, of course, survives into modern English. Uh, Awe and wonder are roughly synonymous, but wonderful has an almost entirely positive connotation, whereas awful is almost entirely negative uh, in today's usage. So the wondrous is both a source of delight and horror, uh, something the Middle Ages recognizes in things like collections of marvels. These include both wonders of great beauty and monsters. This duality seems to be inherent in the nature of the Lindisfarne monk's reaction to discovering the incorruptible body of St. Cuthbert. About 400 years later, in 1104, the monks of Durham also experience a mixture of fear and delight when they open up Cuthbert's grave, but this time it's accounted for a bit differently. This moment doesn't mark the very next time that Cuthbert's body is translated. Uh, it actually gets moved around rather a lot between Bede's account and the dawn of the 12th century, uh, with one particularly famous peregrination during the Viking Age as Norse raids uh, drove the community out of Lindisfarne uh, for uh, several years of wandering with the saintly body in tow. But this is the next occasion on which the saint's body is examined. Well, publicly examined. What I'll read now is from an anonymous account of the 1104 translation, which survives in a few different manuscript copies uh, and has been printed in the Acta Sanctorum uh, of the Bollandist Society. It was written sometime after 1123, so at least 20 years after the event, um, and maybe even a couple of decades later than that. It also has no formal title or even traditional title, Cuthbert scholars usually just call it the anonymous account uh, to distinguish it from another account of this same event by a named author, Reginald of Durham, who, spoiler alert, we'll be hearing from next episode. Most of the primary sources we'll be looking at in this run of Cuthbert episodes are included in English translation in James Raine's 1829 book uh, that covers his inquiry into the relics of St. Cuthbert, and that book is available through Google Books and is quite readable. Sometimes I'll be using Rain's selected translation, uh, and sometimes I'll be going to a different translator from episode to episode. Uh, but in this particular case, we will be hearing Rain's translation of the anonymous account. Under the head of miracles, all do not entertain one and the same opinion, either with respect to the presence of the sacred body of St. Cuthbert or its state of incorruption. Some, founding their opinion on various conjectures, dream that before this our time his body has been removed to some other place, but that his grave, although it can no longer boast of its occupant, is not deprived of the glory of his virtues, but, in proof of its old possessor, gives frequent miraculous manifestations even at the present time. Others admit that the sacred remains are still here, but that the frame of a human body should remain undissolved during the revolutions of so many ages is more than the laws of nature allow of, and that notwithstanding the divine power may command all created things to undergo its pleasure, yet that in the case of this body and its state of incorruption, they have before them the testimony of no one who had explored it either with his hand or eye, 
and that therefore it was a difficult matter to believe with respect to this man, however much a saint, a thing not in his case proved, and which they were well aware had been conceded to only a few of holy men. In this manner, the one party conjecturing that the holy body had been carried away elsewhere, and the other not allowing its incorruption, the brethren who affirmed that it was there and in a perfect state, were disbelieved, and they became in consequence anxious for their reputation. On this account they betook themselves to God in prayer, and entreated that he, who is wonderful in his saints, would prove himself wonderful in the manifestation of so great virtue, and would, to the glory of his name, exclude all doubt by indubitable signs. In the meanwhile, the church which had been founded by William, the late Bishop of Durham, was almost finished, and the time was at hand for transferring into it the venerable body of Father Cuthbert, to occupy the place prepared for it by the ingenious hands of workmen, and receive the meed of worthy veneration. The 39th of August, 1104, the day appointed for the solemn removal being at hand, the brethren entered into a resolution that as no one was alive who could give them accurate information, they themselves, as far as they should be allowed by the permission of God, should examine into the manner in which each individual thing was placed and arranged about the holy body, for this purpose, that they might make it ready for removal on the day approaching, and without loss of time, furnish it with things fit and becoming, lest when the hour of festive procession had arrived, any difficulty proceeding from want of foresight should cause delay, and from that delay any unpleasant feeling should arise in the minds of the numerous assemblage which had come together to witness such a solemnity. The brethren therefore appointed for the purpose, nine in number with Turgo their prior, having qualified themselves for the task by fasting and prayer, on the 24th of August, as soon as it was dark, prostrated themselves before the venerable coffin, and amid tears and prayers they tried to open it with fearful and trembling hands. Aided by instruments of iron, they soon succeeded in their attempt, when, to their astonishment, they found a chest covered on all sides with hides, carefully fixed to it by iron nails. From the weight and size of this chest, and other facts which presented themselves, they were induced to believe that there was another coffin within it, but fear, for a long time, prevented them from making the experiment. At last, the prior, having twice or thrice commanded them to proceed, they renewed their task, and having succeeded in opening the iron bands, they lifted up the lid. Here they saw within a coffin of wood, which had been covered all over by coarse linen cloth of a threefold texture, of the length of a man, and covered with a lid of the same description. Again they hesitated, for a doubt arose whether this was the dwelling place of the holy body, or that there was still another coffin within. In this stage of their operations, they called to mind the words of Bede, which record that the body of St. Cuthbert had been found by the brethren of Lindisfarne in a state of incorruption eleven years after its burial, and had been placed above ground for the purpose of worthy veneration. With this information before them, they discovered that this was the very same coffin which had for so many years preserved the deposit of so heavenly a treasure. Under this conviction, they fell upon their knees and prayed St. Cuthbert to intercede with the Almighty for pardon for their presumption. They rejoiced, and at the same time, they were afraid. Their fear resulted from an apprehension of the consequences of their boldness, and yet the certainty that they had before them so great a treasure inspiring them with delight, their joy burst forth into tears, and with thankful hearts they conceived that their desires had been amply satisfied. 
to make a further examination appeared to be a rashness, which would unquestionably bring down upon them the divine vengeance, and therefore, laying aside their intention of more minutely investigating the sacred body, they entered into deliberation as to the manner in which it should be removed on the day of translation which was approaching. But amongst the brethren who were present, there was one, a man of great constancy in Christ, who, by the effect of grace, had become that, in fact, which his name implied. His name was Leofwin, which means in English, a dear friend. He was dear to God, and God was a friend to him. God proved himself to be his father by the chastisements which he compelled him to undergo, and he evinced himself to be a son of God by patiently and thankfully submitting to the rod which corrected him. All who knew his life and conversation had no doubt that his breast was the temple of the Holy Spirit. He, when he saw the brethren afraid of opening the coffin which they had discovered and viewing the proof of celestial grace and matter of new exaltation which it might contain, stepped forward into the midst of them, and speaking in a more fervent spirit than was his custom, exclaimed, What do ye, my brethren? What do ye fear? That deed will never fail of being attended by a happy result which begins from the inspiration of God. He who gave us the will to make the investigation gives us the hope of discovering what we seek. The progress which we have already made without difficulty is proof of the good which we may hope to arise from what remains to be done. Our beginning would never have been so successful if it had been the divine will that we should not persevere to the end. God will never set that down to the score of rashness which proceeds from a devout mind. Our object in investigating these sacred relics proceeds from no contempt or diffidence of his holiness, but that the Lord of virtues, the King himself of glory, may be the more glorified by all men in proportion to the mightiness of the miracle manifested in the present day. Let us then examine the inner parts of the hospitable chest, that upon a matter which we have seen with our eyes and have thoroughly examined, which our hands have handled, our testimony may be credited, and no argument may be left to the doubtful for disbelieving our assertions. The devout brethren regain their confidence by this admonition, and move the venerable body from behind the altar, where it had hitherto reposed, into the middle of the choir, a place more spacious and better adapted to the investigation. Their first step was to remove the linen cloth which enveloped the coffin. Yet, still they feared to open the coffin itself, and under a hope that its contents might be ascertained through a chink or by other means, they carefully examined its exterior by candlelight, but without success. They then, but not without fear, removed the lid, and no sooner had they done this than they found another lid placed somewhat lower, resting upon three transverse bars and occupying the whole breadth and length of the coffin so as completely to conceal the contents beneath. Upon the upper part of it, near the head, there lay a book of the Gospels. This second lid was raisable by means of two iron rings, one at the head and the other at the feet. A doubt no longer remained. They knew that the object of their search was before them, but still they hesitated to handle it with their hands. They had an eager desire to see and touch that which had been the object of their affections, but fear, resulting from a consciousness of their sins, repelled them from the attempt and between the two they were kept in such suspense as almost to be ignorant which, in reality, they preferred. Whilst they were in this state of doubt, being encouraged by the command of the prior and the exhortation of the brother above mentioned, at last they raised the lid, 
and having removed the linen cloth which had covered the sacred relics immediately beneath it, they smelt an odor of the sweetest fragrancy. And behold, they found the venerable body of the Blessed Father, the fruit of their anxious desire, lying on its right side in a perfect state, and, from the flexibility of its joints, representing a person asleep rather than dead. The moment they saw this, a tremendous fear thrilled through their limbs, and they shrunk back to a distance, not daring to look at the miracle before their eyes. Often, many a time, they fell upon their knees, beating their breasts and exclaiming, with eyes and hands raised to heaven, Lord, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. Whilst they were in this state, each related to the one who was nearest to him what he had seen, just as if he had been the only one favored with the sight. After a short interval, they all fell flat on the ground, and amid a deluge of tears, repeated the seven penitential psalms, and prayed the Lord not to correct them in his anger, nor chasten them in his displeasure. Okay, so at this point, the account goes into more detail about the body of Cuthbert and what else was found inside the coffin, but I'm going to skip past that, um, because that, albeit as recounted by a different source, will be the main subject of our next episode. Instead, I'll conclude by skipping ahead a little bit in the text and picking up the initial theme our author started with, the problem of skepticism. In the meanwhile, the day of the approaching translation being made known far and wide, there was a great flocking to Durham from every side. Men of all ranks, ages, and professions, the secular and the spiritual, all hastened to be present. They had heard of the miracle, that the body, although dead for so many years, was still free from decay, and they gloried in the fact that such a wonder was made manifest in their time. But among the abbots who had assembled, there was one who, hearing what had taken place, openly complained of the injury which had been done him, and charged the brethren of the church with improvident rashness in undertaking by themselves a work so important and so unusual without consulting him or making him a sharer in their proceedings. It was only fit, he said, that he, seeing he was their neighbor, should have been called in as one who might afterwards state that he had been present at the investigation, and might, by his asseveration, stamp it with the impress of truth." It was probable enough, he said, that the brethren, as they had not permitted a member of any other church to witness their secret proceedings, were dealing in fiction rather than in fact. Reason, he added, seems to require that the truth of such a marvelous thing should be investigated by others, that the people who have assembled in such numbers may be satisfied by the testimony of us, who, by ocular demonstration, have ascertained the fact. These remarks he took care to make frequently in the hearing of those who had assembled, and there were some who began to think as he did upon the subject. The appointed day was already at hand, and the brethren, having heard the calumnious remarks of the abbot, were grievously scandalized that they themselves should be branded with the infamy of falsehood, and that a further exposure of the sacred body should be aimed at, a thing which they dared neither to permit to others nor repeat themselves." There was, therefore, much vehemency on both sides. 
The abbot insisted that the attestation of the brethren of the church ought not to be admitted with respect to their own deed, and the brethren, in confusion at the suspicion under which they labored, exclaimed that a man could only meditate either the ruin of their monastery or their own expulsion from it, who, repelling their testimony even when given upon oath as false, held them up as sacrilegious and worthy of detestation. Let it never be the case, said they, that that man should have an opportunity of seeing the sacred remains through whose agency we have fallen under the suspicion of a grievous falsehood. Even some of those very men who yesterday sang along with us glory to God in the highest and glad strains of exultation, today, at the instigation of this abbot, hold us suspected of a lie. The contention was at its highest pitch, and no end seemed likely to be put to it, when Ralph, then abbot of Siez and afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, a man of venerable memory, of much mildness and deeply read in the Holy Scriptures, stepped forward as a mediator between the parties. That is a true saying of Scripture, said he, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. But how much more strongly ought it to be established in the mouth of a numerous body of men, and those so worthy of credit that reason should permit no one to question their testimony? We believe that a work of divine power has been revealed in the body of St. Cuthbert. We believe, and for this my mouth speaks the praise of the Lord, and my soul blesses his name. But seeing the evidence of this miracle is so strong, perhaps I shall seem to be acting rashly if I should require the incorruption of the holy body manifested to you to be manifested to us also. And yet I ought to be considered neither rash nor doing that which is unnecessary. But because perfect charity casteth out fear, I presume from my great affection to make a request, which I beg may be apologized for by charity. It is no small furtherance to my prayer that there is a doubt in the mind of our brother Abbot, which, if it be not removed by the testimony of others as well as of you, will appear to have given rise to just complaints against you and will make many entertain the same notion. For, in my opinion, this his slowness of belief proceeds from divine providence, that from that which you anticipate as the cause of grave offense, there should arise, by the dispensation of God, a still greater glory to this your church. For as soon as you have favorably attended to our request, and we ourselves have found that to be true, of which we had before only heard, the calumny of gainsayers will the sooner cease, in proportion as an experiment shall have corroborated your testimony and ours, and so much the more extensively will the glory of God and St. Cuthbert be made known, as we who have proved it with our eyes, as we return home in different directions, shall have set ourselves to divulge it to all the world. The bishop would at once have given his assent to the prayer of the venerable abbot, had not the brethren conceived that his request ought not to be hastily complied with fearing as they did some tremendous judgment from above if they unadvisedly again exposed the holy body to view. At length, influenced by the persuasion of their prudent friends, they very reluctantly agreed to this, that, putting aside the abbot who had been of opinion that they were unworthy of belief, their humble and religious suitor, along with such others as may seem fit persons, should be admitted to a new inspection of the miracle. But by the persuasion of their advisers, they at last admitted even the doubter himself, the man who, having been slow of belief himself, had shaken the belief of others. And they admitted him for this reason, 
that having seen the miracle with his own eyes, he might believe what he had refused to receive upon their authority. The dispute having been thus arranged, the prior led the way into the church, followed by the aforesaid abbot of Siez, Richard, abbot of St. Albans, Stephen, abbot of St. Mary at York, and Hugh, abbot of St. Germain at Selby, all clad in their albs. Next came Alexander, brother of the King of Scotland, himself afterwards king, and William, then chaplain to the Bishop of Durham, and afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury. Then followed forty men, some of them monks and the others secular clergy, but all of them devoted to a religious life. And these were succeeded by more brethren of the church. Some were absent, but their services were required by the bishop, who was at that very point of time dedicating an altar in the church. After a prayer, devoutly uttered by all who were present, the sacred body was brought into the choir, and as soon as the coffin was opened by the brethren who had so lately closed it, the prior raised his hand and by a tremendous charge forbade anyone, except the abbot of Siez, from touching either the body or anything connected with it. The rest he commanded to stand hard by and make themselves acquainted with the truth by means of their eyes rather than their hands. Moreover, he charged the brethren of the monastery to pay unceasing attention to what was going on and to watch with a vigilant eye, lest anyone should by any means carry off even a particle of thread from the vestments in which the body was wrapped. His commands were obeyed. The abbot aforesaid, assisted by a brother of the church, having unfolded the vestments around the venerable head, raised it a little in both his hands in the sight of all, and bending it backwards in different directions, found it perfect in all the joints of its neck, and firmly attached to the rest of the body. He next applied his hand to the ear, which he drew backwards and forwards in no gentle manner, and having proceeded to examine the other parts of the body with his inquisitive hand, found it consisting of solid nerves and bones, and clothed with the softness of flesh. Nay, holding it by the head and shaking it as he held it, he so far raised it up that it seemed almost to assume a sitting position in its quiet abode. And lest anything should be overlooked in the diligent inquiry, he took care to ascertain the perfect state of its feet and legs. There were some who could no longer look upon such a scene as this with a fearless gaze, and covering their eyes with their hands exclaimed that he, the investigator, insisted upon a greater proof of the truth than circumstances called for, that he had before him the fact in all its certainty. After a while, when the Inquisitor had over and above satisfied himself of the truth of the miracle, he raised his voice in the midst of the assembled multitude and cried aloud, My brethren, the body which we have before us is unquestionably dead, but it is just as sound and entire as when it was forsaken by its holy soul on its way to the skies. After this, all things being arranged about the holy body as they had been before, those who were present pronounced the brethren of the monastery voracious and worthy to be trusted, and he who had a while before judged them unworthy of credit affirmed, whether he would or not, in conjunction with the rest, that what he had before denied deserved to be believed. They all straightway chanted the Te Deum in solemn exultation, and everything which was necessary being decently arranged, the holy body of the Father was placed upon the shoulders of a fit number of bearers, and in honor of the omnipotent God, a band of singers scattered their celestial peals on the gale. The various caskets of relics, the remains of the other saints, went before, the venerable body of the blessed Cuthbert, the bishop, followed after, 
and no sooner was it out of the door and in the open air than the immense crowd which was waiting for it from very joy burst into tears and fell flat on the ground, rendering it almost impossible for the procession to advance. All the while the voices of the singers were drowned by the strong cries of the praying, the exulting, and the weeping for joy. Having gone round the outside of the new church, the procession halted at its eastern end, where the bishop began a sermon, and there stood by his side men to inform the assembled multitudes of the fact that they had seen and handled this miracle of incorruption, which had lasted for 418 years. It was a matter of new exultation to them that their devotion had been thought worthy to be rewarded with such a manifestation of celestial grace. The day had far advanced, and the bishop kept preaching on, touching many points not at all appropriate to the solemnity, and fairly wearing out the patience of many of his hearers by the prolixity of his discourse. The brightness of the day had been such that there was no sign of bad weather whatever in the sky, when, on a sudden, such torrents of rain began to fall that the brethren, interrupting the sermon, snatched up the coffin in which the holy body was contained and hastily conveyed it into the church. No sooner had they done this, then the rain straightway ceased. And the inference from this is plain, that it was not pleasing to God that the sacred body of his servant should be any longer detained in unholy ground. There is another fact worthy to be recorded, that notwithstanding the immense fall of rain, neither the ornaments of the church, which were all of them exposed to it, nor the robes of those who were dressed more splendidly than usual, received any injury whatever. At length, the body having been decently restored to its place, a solemn mass was performed, whilst all the while the church was echoing with peals of praise and the mysteries for the safety of the faithful being duly gone through, all returned home with joy, glorifying and praising God for what they had seen and heard. So, more fear, more trembling, but this time it isn't the uncanniness of the incorruptible body that sparks it, but rather this deep fear of offending the divine, this fear of sacrilege. And though our anonymous chronicler doesn't ascribe this to the Durham monks who themselves are never shown to be doubting what's in that coffin, one has to imagine that doubt, or even just the appearance of doubt, is part of that fear of God punishing you. Is testing the miracle an attack on God? Uh, or much less than that is simply challenging the received narrative of what was seen 400 years earlier, an attack on faith for which one might be deservedly struck down. On the one hand, this provides ample material for a rationalist critique of religious close-mindedness and subjugation to traditional authority. But on the other... As much as the monks are full of fear and trembling when looking their particular miraculous gift horse in the mouth, we might note that there is a skeptical faction, or really factions, plural, out there uh, in those monks' world who themselves are able to wield quite a lot of influence in the debate. In fact, their arguments are the driving force behind the inspection of the body in the first place. Of course, they get put in their place by the end of the narrative, um, but this is another one of those occasions where we do get the skeptical voices recorded, and I think it's important to remember them, uh, especially when we go on to look at other texts that may have erased them from their histories. 
There's so much more that could be said on the subject of doubt and the miraculous, um, but we're already into uh, what I expect is our longest episode ever, uh, so I'll have to wrap it up here. Uh, And we do still have more accounts of Cuthbert's body yet to come. But I must avoid being like one of my other favorite details from the anonymous account, the long-winded Bishop of Durham, who is dragged off the stage by the celestial shepherd's crook, uh, or, if you will, swept off by the Apollo Theater's Sandman, in the form of a marvelous rain shower. I love how the author gets to use the framing of this as a miracle tale to insert a bit of complaint about an invited speaker who just goes on and on and on, the kind of criticism of an authority that, in other circumstances, a medieval writer might well have not felt safe putting down on parchment. All right, and before my parade can be rained on, here is our riddle from quite a while back now. Uh, Ah, well, anyway, uh, our riddle was, No one can split, though many sunder me. I'm various colors now, but white shall be, and black I'd stay, the less my fate to see. This is a riddle of Symphosius, uh, as translated into rhyming English by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois, uh, and the answer to this riddle is capillus, or a hair. You can't split a hair lengthwise, uh, not with scissors at least, uh, but you can sunder it across. And hair turns white as we age, and none of us want to age, so we don't want our hair to turn white, or at least so goes the traditional uh, sentiment. Uh, I picked this riddle, um, not quite realizing I'd be attaching it to such a long episode, but what can you do? Um, But I picked it because it affords an opportunity to touch on one of the other interesting bits of Cuthbert trivia, uh, something we've actually briefly seen in episode uh, 22 concerning Alfred the Bone Hunter. Uh, And if you are a new listener to the show, um, let me say, I think that's a particularly good episode uh, that you might go fish out of the back catalog um, if you're going to sample some of our older material. Reginald, whom we'll be hearing from more next time, has an extended description of something Simeon uh, just briefly mentions about Elfred's time as the sacrist responsible for overseeing Cuthbert's shrine. Elfred indulges in a peculiar intimacy with the undecaying corpse. Uh, and in this particular story, the sharp distinction between living person and dead corpse that we noted earlier is not as rigorously maintained. Here's what Reginald says, as translated by James Rain. In times of old there flourished one Elfred Westu, who, for the love which he bore to St. Cuthbert, was distinguished by peculiar privileges conceded to no one but himself. For, as often as it pleased him, he might freely and with impunity open the coffin of the saint, might wrap him in such robes as he thought fit, and could obtain from him, without delay, whatever he requested. Whence it is recorded that he, from long familiarity, attained to such a degree of cordiality with the saint that it was his custom to cut the overgrowing hair of his venerable head, to adjust it by dividing it and smoothing it with an ivory comb, and to cut the nails of his fingers, tastefully reducing them to roundness. Hence, doubtless, it came to pass that he was occasionally in the habit of showing to diverse of his friends portions of the cuttings of his hair, and by way of experiment, which he had filled a censer with burning coals, he would, by the aid of a pair of silver scissors which he had fabricated for this express purpose, expose those portions to the flames in the sight of all. But the hair would immediately, after the fashion of gold, glisten in the midst of the fire, and undergo neither injury nor diminution, 
and after the lapse of an hour, when removed by the scissors, it would, to the great astonishment of all, lay aside the brightness of gold and assume its former character. Whence, as it is believed, those scissors, along with the large ivory comb perforated in its center, are found in the coffin of the blessed bishop, still retaining their original freshness and beauty, and with the reverence of honor, are placed upon a tablet by the side of his body. We'll actually come back to Rain's interpretation of this miracle later in our Cuthbert series. Um, you've been patient in waiting for this episode to drop, uh, so I'm going to try to get the next one out in just one week, or thereabouts, uh, rather than two. Uh, and the third, just another week or so after that. So, for new listeners, uh, we alternate riddles with medieval mystery words, um, which are just somewhat obscure or curious words from various medieval languages. And our word for next time is uh, jumprid or yumprid, um, J or I, U-M-P-R-E-D. And I'll be back uh, next episode with its meaning. In the meantime, you can contact me at the places I mentioned earlier. So at MDT podcast on Twitter or through our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can also email me with queries or comments at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I've also just recently gotten the show added to Google Play, so if you prefer to use that to manage your podcast subscriptions, well, that's an option now. Um, it's also another place where one uh, might choose to rate or review the show, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And many thanks to all of you who have posted reviews on iTunes and other platforms. Um, in early days, I wanted to be good about thanking people individually as they posted reviews, but I got behind and now the backlog is just um, too great. Uh, so I hope you will all take my most heartfelt thanks collectively. And to everyone, reviewers or no, new and old, thanks for listening. <laughs>